experts tell us that we're just not a nation that eats together as a family anymore. I mean, you know the way things used to be, right? Five or six o'clock, kids would get home from school, they'd wash up, there'd be a meal just lovingly prepared, the family would gather around the table and you'd eat together as a family. Well, in most homes across our nation, that's just not happening anymore. I mean, you know the way it is today, right? I mean, kids get home, parents get home, and we're rushing to the next thing. There's the practice to get to. There's the event you've got to go to. And so we don't eat as much as we graze. We go into the kitchen. We open up the refrigerator. We find something that we can just eat on the go, that we can eat in the car to wherever it is that we're going because we are a people, a culture, who often eat on the run. You know, we're not the first people to eat on the run. On a very dark night, when Israel was still in Egypt, they would have a meal where they would eat on the run. In fact, God would tell the people that, hey, you don't have time to boil the water. You don't have time to allow the bread to rise. You got to eat with your staff in hand. You got to eat dressed and ready to go. You need to eat on the run. Why? Because our God is a God who is on the move. Our God doesn't just stay in one place. He's on the move. He's reaching every part of our culture, every sphere of our society. We serve a God on the move. And so if we follow him, there will be meals where we will eat on the run. There will also be meals where we were gathered together around as a family. And we'll remember about the things that God has done, his faithfulness in the past to give us hope for the future. The Israelites would find that out too. I want you to see that this morning as we explore chapters 12 through 14. We'll begin in chapter 12, verses 1 through 16. Listen to this. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make a count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They, they shall eat it, the flesh, at night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat of any raw or boiled water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains in the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, 
from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold an assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work should be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. This is an awful, awful night. Don't, don't walk by this too fast. Don't try to paint some kind of shiny veneer over it. This is a dreadful, dreadful night. You know, each of the first nine plagues, they all confronted one of these false Egyptian gods, the thing that Egypt worships. And with this plague, God would attack the Egyptians' chief god, their, their primary god, and that's Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was believed to be a god, and he believed his son to be a god. He believed that he was the child of the sun god Ra, and that his son was the child of the sun god Ra, and his son represented to Pharaoh hope. Hope that Egypt would continue to prosper, that this line would be intact, and that things would continue to go well for Egypt. But all that was about to be put to the test. And I know a lot of people get angry with this because we think, God, how is this fair? I mean, this does not seem fair of you. We understand that Pharaoh was an evil guy. We understand that he brutalized the Hebrews. That, hey, whatever Pharaoh gets, you know, he has coming to him. But Pharaoh's kid, I mean, what has Pharaoh's son done? I mean, what does he have to do with any of this? And all the Egyptians, all their firstborn sons, I mean, what are they guilty of? Why did they have to bear this punishment, pay this dreadful, awful price? Now, before we get too self-righteous, understand this. It is always the kids who pay. It is always the children who pay. It's the children who pay in our culture. I mean, anxiety and depression rates among students in America have never been higher. Uh, children, they're afraid that they're not going to live up to moms and dads' expectations. Children sacrificed on the altars of their parents' egos. We have divorce rates that are sky high. We've got children being born out of wedlock at alarming levels. And sadly, tragically, we have many children who are not even given the chance of life at all. See, understand, it is always the children who pay. Yeah, the adults may pay too. They do. They pay a price. But it's always the kids who pay. The only difference between us and Pharaoh is, well, Pharaoh, it's just a little more obvious with him. I mean, the suffering is just a little bit more pronounced. But we always make the kids pay. And now, the one thing that Pharaoh trusted most, the one thing that he could look at and know that his dynasty was going to live on and survive and continue to flourish, well, that would be taken from him. Because no firstborn would escape this. Not his firstborn, not the firstborn of any of the horses that would... Uh, ride for his chariots, not the firstborn of any cattle that they would eat for dinner, not the firstborn of any Egyptian in all the land. They would all perish. And can you imagine just the horrific, the dreadful screams that night as the parents would wake up and they would find out that their son, their firstborn son, was dead. Oh, it was a tragic, gruesome night in Egypt. But there was no screaming in Goshen, in the land where the Hebrews were allowed to live, because God always provides a way out. 
There was a way out provided for the Egyptians, but Pharaoh, due to his hard heart that just continued to ring out pride, stubbornness, and rebellion, it had to come to this. That's why Moses left with such hot anger, because he knew what was coming and how dreadful it was. You know, he was a child born during the time when the Hebrews were going through something similar. He would have heard the stories from his parents, likely how he was preserved. He was saved during this time, allowed to live in the king's palace. He, he would have heard some stories. And now it's coming back on the Egyptians, and Moses knows how horrific this is. He leaves Pharaoh hot with anger with this plague coming. But there's always a way out. God always gives his children a way out. And so here, the, the way out is very messy. It's not the way we would have chosen. We would have done something a whole lot different. But this is the way that God prescribed. And he says, what you need to do is you need to find out how many people uh, you have in your household and how much you're going to eat. You need to sacrifice a lamb. And then you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to smear it all, all over your doorposts. And this is a messy solution, isn't it? It's messy because sin is messy. You know, sometimes we don't realize just how messy sin is. We tend to trivialize it, minimize it, and reduce it. We, we say things like, oh, I just messed up, I goofed up, I made a mistake, I'm human, it's just what I do, it's who I am, and we make excuses for it. But sin is messy, and in its messiness, it always cuts, it always bleeds, it always wounds, it always destroys relationships. That's what it comes down to, is it wounds, hurts, cuts, destroys relationships. And we think, oh, you just say the word, you mean you just tell me that I'm forgiven. I said I'm sorry, just say you're forgiven, speak the word, and that's it. But that's, it's not so easy. That's not the way it really works. See, I've been married almost 15 years now, so that's long enough for me to say some pretty hurtful, dumb things at times. And when I say something hurtful for Steph, as much as I want her to just say, I forgive you and that be it, that's not it. Because the only way for forgiveness to truly be born in her heart and then extended to me is for her to take that hurtful thing, that wrong thing that I've done, take it to Jesus. And then Jesus give her and produce in her this forgiveness of heart where she's able to look at me covered by Jesus and not by this hurtful thing that I've said. And then forgiveness is born in her heart through Jesus and then extended to me. And that's the only way we can truly forgive someone is if we take what they've done to us and we take it to Jesus and allow the forgiveness from him that we've experienced from him then to flow into our heart so that we can then extend it to somebody else. Because understand this, all sin is ultimately a sin against God. When I sin against my wife, I've also sinned against God. Why? Because he created her. He made her. He designed her. He, he fashioned her with a purpose. And when I violate that, when I come up against that, it's not just that I've sinned against her. I've also sinned against him. And so forgiveness is ultimately comes from him, breed into our heart, and then extended to the person that needs to be extended to, but sometimes we miss that. We think it's so easy. We just just say the word, I'm sorry, uh, you're forgiven. But when that happens, when it's just this words off of our tongue, you know what happens? You hold on to it. And then later, they'll, they'll do something dumb again. And what happens? You, it all comes back. It comes boiling up to the surface again. Why? Because you haven't taken it to the person who can ultimately deal with it. That's how forgiveness is truly dealt with. And so 
sin destroys. What the Israelites did not know then, but what we realize today, is that God always provides a way out. And the way that God would provide the way out for the Israelites would foreshadow the way that he would provide a way out for all humanity. This blood that would be smeared all over the doorposts, well... As we said, the children always pay, and the child of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he would pay for the sins of us all. His blood would be shed for us so that it could cover our sin, and we could escape the penalty of our sin, that true forgiveness could be extended from God the Father to us through his Son. And because of that, death has been defeated and forgiveness is born and we get to walk in that. And in addition to all of that, the righteousness of Jesus is then imputed to us. It's given to us so that we can be seen as children of God. This is the power of Jesus. And God's a God who's on the move. He, he, he marches into every corner of culture, every sphere of society to extend this offer of his son to pay for all of us. And so as we follow God, sometimes we're on the move as well. This is what the Israelites were finding out, that they would be a people on the move, that they would have to eat on the run. Hey, there's no time to let the water boil to put the lamb in the water. No, you just need to roast it over the fire as quick as you can. You're going to have to eat standing up. You know, there's no time for the bread to rise. You're going to eat unleavened bread. You're going to eat with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. You're going to eat ready to go. This is how they're going to have to do things. God doesn't want what he is doing to be lost on future generations. And so at this time, he's also instituting this celebration, this feast of the unleavened bread. Hey, for seven days in the future, you're going to set aside this week and you're going to do things like you did it back then. You're not going to eat any leavened bread, any bread that's had time to rise. You're not going to do that. And on the seventh day, there's going to be this grand festival and you're going to tell the stories. You're going to remember how I provided for you during this hard, this difficult time, how I rescued you from the land of Egypt. See, it's important, isn't it, to have meals where sometimes we're on the go, but other times we're around gathered together as a family, remembering what God has done, his faithfulness in the past, because it inspires us that he'll continue to be faithful in the future. See, God understands that while children have to pay for the sins of their parents, it's not all we have to leave them with. That we can have those meals gathered together, remembering God's faithfulness. That he does equip us to disciple our kids in such a way that they really can love God and serve people. This is what he's doing for the Israelites in initiating this ceremony. And so the Israelites at this time, though, they would be eating on the run. There's not much time. They've got to eat and run. We'll see that as we continue through in Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. It reads, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And they may travel by day and by night. 
the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It's interesting, this deathbed request of Joseph would be realized. Moses would run over and in the haste to get out of there to escape Egypt. He has the time to grab the bones of Joseph, this deathbed request of this faithful forefather from all these years ago. And I don't know, but, you know, you read this now and you almost have this idea. I mean, hey, Joseph's been dead for 430 years. We don't even know what's left in that coffin. Moses, just get out of there. It doesn't really matter at this point. You just need to go. Why kind of load yourself down with this? But see, understand something. When God is in control... Speed doesn't become panic. When you recognize that God is in control of your life, yes, sometimes you have to do things hastily. I mean, the people are eating on the go. They're moving on the go. There's a lot to get done in a very short amount of time, but it doesn't mean they're panicked. And so Moses, he has the time to go to grab the bones of of Joseph to honor this faithful forefather. You know, it doesn't matter that there's this volatile Pharaoh who continues to go back on his words, who's chasing them down and all of this. It doesn't matter about all of that. The people aren't panicked. And as the people of God, we're often called to move with speed. You know, we're called to redeem the time. We're called to be hardworking. We don't just serve to see that the job is done. We serve with excellence so that God may be glorified in everything. We give it our all. So we're called to move with speed a lot. But that speed doesn't turn to panic when God is in control. That's the key. The speed doesn't turn to panic. It's simply trust. There is trust. Well, that trust is about to be tested for the Hebrews, as you'll see, as they're being led out of Egypt. Check it out. Exodus 14, verses 5 through 14. It reads, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. They overtook them encamped by the sea at Piharath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die out here in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you back in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today... You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Pharaoh had just seen over 2 million of his slaves exit Egypt. 
And so he comes to his senses, at least he thinks he does, because he's seeing this and he realizes, there's my economic workforce just marching right out of the country. What am I going to do? I mean, how are we going to survive economically? We've been dependent upon them for a number of years now. And so he gets his elite task force, his 600 chariots. I mean, these are his elite soldiers, all of his best army. And he sends them all out in haste. you got to track these people down. And so at this point, you know, I'm at a place where I really have to depend on experts who understand the geography and understand Hebrew a little bit better than I do. But they end up at this place called Pahiroth. Uh, which is translated mountain of the caverns and also Migdal. We see that a little earlier in the, in the chapter, but Migdal is a tower. Okay. And so some have speculated that th this was perhaps an Egyptian fortress where the Egyptian troops would be stationed to kind of look out and see if there are any kind of incoming intruders who may wish harm on Egypt. And it's almost as if God is saying, I want you to take them to the mountain of the caverns there where there's the watchtower. That's the place where I want you to go. And in addition to all of that, on the other side is Baal Zephon, which that means the Lord of the North. And the Lord of the North, it's a vast de desert region. And so the Israelites, they know they're at a surefire dead end here. They've got cavernous mountains on one side. They've got a desert on another side. And then there's the Red Sea right there. There's nowhere for them to go. They're feeling boxed in. And at this time, well, now it's time to panic. You know, there's no, there's no speed. They can't go anywhere. It's just panic time. And that's what happens. Because you can imagine, you, you're looking back and you see just this army of Egyptians coming. I mean, just the cloud cloud of dust that they're creating as these chariots are marching your way and you are hearing the thunder of just galloping horses coming straight towards you. Yeah, you know now's the time to panic. And that panic, it quickly shifts to blame. I mean, Moses, he's very quickly right back in the doghouse because the people believe Moses had led them the wrong way. I mean, they know that Moses had led them the wrong way because they're supposed to be going to Canaan. And they're not headed towards Canaan. This is a different direction. We saw that, right? And they're, so they're going this way and they're looking. They said, Moses, why'd you even take us here? Why are we going this way anywhere? Are you some kind of double agent? Do you know that, hey, there's just no graves in Egypt? And so you've taken us out in the wilderness to die here? I mean, what's going on? And then that blame... Well, it quickly shifts to despair because they think they're all dead. I mean, they see this army approaching them and they know they're boxed in. They've got nowhere to go. They think they're dead. And so they bring it all back up into Moses' face. They say, Moses, we told you when you first came to us that you just needed to go. That, yeah, we're slaves in Egypt, but it's not that bad. We'd rather be servants in Egypt than living the way we are now because our life is gone. And at that moment, Moses says something. He tries to encourage the people. He says, hey, don't be afraid. God's going to rescue you. It's going to be all right. And you're almost looking at this and saying, Moses, I mean, wake up. Rub your eyes a little bit, man. Look behind you. See what's going on. But see, that's the problem with the Hebrews, isn't it? They're looking behind them. They're seeing this army. They're looking over at Moses. And he's the object of their wrath at this point. But you know where they're not looking is up. And they're not looking up to God. And when they, if they were to pause just for a moment to look up to God, what would they have seen? They'd have seen that pillar of cloud that was leading them by day. They'd have seen that pillar of fire that had led them by night. That God, his presence was still there. 
And God was about to do something very incredible. That pillar of cloud was going to shift and it was going to move right between the camps, right between the Egyptians and between the Hebrews. It had always gone out in front of them, but now it was going to go behind them. And when God did something, he was doing something very important. He was blocking the vision of the Hebrews so that they could no longer see this army that they were so terrified of. And at the same time, he was also blocking the vision of the Egyptians so they couldn't see what God was about to do. And we know this part of the story well. We know what happens. But we had this idea, this mental image that the Hebrews are going to march through the Red Sea during the daytime. It's not really what happens. They're all going to march through at night. The pillar of fire, it's going to lead them through the night. And this furious east wind comes. Moses raises up his arms. The the Red Sea splits and the people are allowed to pass through. Understand, you've got over 2 million people passing through in all of their cattle. Experts tell us that by the time that the first people at the front of the line got through to to the other side, The people at the back of the line, they haven't even reached the the riverbed yet. I mean, this was going to be an all-night affair trying to get all these people through. But that's just what God will do. He will get them all through. And then the Egyptians, they'll realize what's happening and they will chase and march after them. And once they reach the riverbed... God is going to clog up their wheels. Just as Moses said, God will fight for us. It's exactly what he does. He clogs up the wheels of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians say, we've got to turn back. God God is fighting for them. We just need to go home. And so as they're turning their chariots around, preparing to march back to Egypt, well, the river is allowed to run back together and it just swallows them up. The Bible says that God did all this so that the Egyptians would glorify God and not Pharaoh. That that, this this is what it was all about from the beginning. Don't you see that God wants the glory? He wants the glory from his people, but he wants the glory from all people. He's actually going to raise up the Israelites to be a light to all the other nations, so that all nations would glorify the one true God. That's what he wanted out of the Egyptians, for Pharaoh and all of his people to glorify him and not any false gods. Well, you got to see the last two verses of this chapter and where the Hebrews end up at this point. Chapter 14, verses 30 and 31, it reads, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Isn't that incredible? This great fear that had just kind of come upon them as they're seeing the armies and everything. Now, the Hebrews fear God. They have a healthy fear of God. And you know what a healthy fear of God produces? Hope. Hope for freedom, hope for something better, hope that God can use them to do things beyond themselves. See, hope dreams, big dreams. Heavenly Father, this morning as we kind of walk through this miraculous escape that you provided for your people in the land of Egypt, we're reminded of the fact that you told your people then to set aside meals where they could gather together as a family and remember the ways in which you've been faithful in the past. God, we recognize the need to do that in our busy culture today as well. God, help us to set aside time where we're able to come together as families at dinner tables and share your goodness toward us, your faithfulness toward us, so that we will be inspired for your uh, continued faithfulness in the future.
And God, we also recognize that there will be moments where you call us to eat on the run, where we take the good news of Jesus into our culture, wherever it is, where we live, work, study, and play. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.